This podcast is brought to you by, by, by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets. Hello, I'm Mabatu Munzi and your host. Today I'm speaking to Neosha Roshani. Neosha is a social scientist, serial entrepreneur, researcher, and a visionary leader with a global approach and citizenship, connecting change makers in diverse sectors to opportunities around the world. She is the co-founder of Global Black Youth that connects, amplifies, and invests in the reach and impact of the most cutting-edge technology generated by young black disruptors, innovators, and entrepreneurs on a global scale. Welcome to our Social Innovation and Technology Session, a Global Perspective episode. Good afternoon, Neosha. Good afternoon, Mabatul. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You have a very interesting and diverse profile. Please share with us some of your experiences from the over 25 countries you've worked in. I would say that as you discover a new country or learn a new language, uh, you develop another layer dimension yourself, your floor culture, your family grows as you connect with some of the most impactful people. You realize that you're no expert at anything. Um, no matter how many years of studies or work experience you gain. And you don't just become multilingual or multicultural. You gain multiple identities. So identities have become a central part of any work that I've done or decision made. Because I'm from Ivory Coast. My mother is from Iran. My father is from Azerbaijan. Having lived and worked in so many different places, you know, I get the dreadful question, where are you from? And if I tell them I'm from the Ivory Coast, they often look at me like, well, where are you really from? As the earlier question you asked me, Mbato, but where are you originally from? And I told you I haven't done a DNA test. And I haven't, which I'm actually interested in doing so. But um, I really like what author Taile Selassie has put so well. She says, don't ask where I'm from, ask where I'm a local. And I loved it. So I'm a local of many places. I'm a local of Abidjan. I'm a local of New York City, I'm a local of Rio de Janeiro, of Bogota, of Cali, of Beirut, and the many other places I've lived in. You know, and she also said that all experience is local and all identity is experienced. So I'm actually a multi-local, like she puts it so well. So as a result, I can think but globally, uh, become multidimensional as a result. And just the way that our global society is, it doesn't make me less of an Ivorian, if I'm also Brazilian, if I'm also Colombian, if I'm also an Iranian or American. And I'm not, I mean, I would say that my you know, largest contribution has been to connect bridges between some of the most impactful and significant catalysts I have met. So thinking globally, bringing that global perspective to any work that I do and thinking of how we can connect. You know, I would meet somebody like, oh my God, you have to meet this other person who is doing very similar work in the, in the realm that you, you're working in but they don't know of each other, right? So how is it that I connect them to each other and create that global impact? Wow, it sounds very interesting. And I mean, having traveled all these countries, done the work in all these countries, what would you say have been the highlight of your career? I mean, you know, I can say what most people would say and say, oh, you know, especially coming from a, a refugee background and, you know, my parents left everything, lost everything to the war. In Iran, when they went to chase a dream in the Ivory Coast, I could say my biggest achievement was to get a postdoc at Harvard University. But I don't think of, you know, that that was my biggest achievement. So I think the highlight of my career is really trying to help 
to change the dominant narratives of not just young Africans, but young people of African descent. Because as I was traveling and living in many different places around the world, I discovered that there were cohorts of Afro-Turks, Afro-Iranians or Black Iranians, you know, Black Chinese, Black Indians, Black Pakistanis. So the community is really global. And one of my biggest dreams was really to foster a global ecosystem of young people who are disrupting the status quo or outsmarting the status quo and who are doing fantastic things and coming up with solutions to our most pressing issues. But unfortunately, because of that dominant narrative, are being underutilized and underappreciated. Sure. Your work is really phenomenal. And the number of countries you've been in, the number of people you have interacted with, the cultural exchange, I think it really sets one apart when you look at some of the social issues that we experience. So having the type of global experience that you have, one then really gets to see that it doesn't really matter which country you're from, but we are mostly struggling with very similar issues as people of different countries. I think one of the things that I would really want to get from you is what is the personal philosophy that influences your work? I know I've done a bit of humanitarian work. I've done a lot of work in the social development space, and it does get heavy. Now, when you have your own personal story of how your parents left their home and some of the influences from traveling, what would you say has really influenced your work and your personal philosophy? I would say three words. So identities, narratives, and integrity. So identities because you carry on and you adopt multiple identities by having lived in so many different places. And it makes you the multidimensional, the complex person, the multifaceted person that you are. And also because people, like I said, in the work that I do right now, I was amazed to find out, for example, that there are um, Black Iranians, right? And that my grandma is actually a Black Iranian and I never knew. So you can be an Iranian and you can be Black at the same time. You can be Lebanese and Black. And um, I can be, like I said, Ivorian, Brazilian, American, Colombian, all at the same time. And it doesn't make me one less of a, you know, than the other. So identity is very complex, and especially living in the U.S. It's very much centered around that. So if you are you're doing something that, that is out of the norm uh, of what is accepted to belong to that identity, then you're no longer part of that group. Um, so I don't really agree with the way they approach that um, that concept. I would say narratives is the the biggest the large I mean the biggest concept that I I base most of my work on. Narratives is you know change the way we think, change the way we do, from internalizing that narrative to you know public policies to the lack of investment or the overinvestment that goes into a country is basically narratives dominate and and dictate the branding of a person or the branding of a country or a region. So that narratives, I have had to rewrite my own narratives. And it's really important to undo a lot of the social conditioning that we have been subjected to all of life and to find the real narrative, our own narrative, but also the narrative of, of the region of the people that we, we belong to. When I always tell people that narratives are directly linked to the SDGs, for example, of the UN, and that will fail to meet them, the same way that we have failed to, to achieve the Millennium Goals, they look at me and they, they think it's quite odd, but it's, um, you know, it's very much linked to the socio-development, uh, economic development of a, of a country as well, of a region. 
So I want to say the next time, for example, I say that I'm from the Ivory Coast, I want people to look at me and be like, wow, yeah, you're from that country, not just Drogba, which in Brazil, I often get that. But I want also people to say, oh, yeah, the country that has, uh, has the largest production of cocoa in the world uh, and so much more, right? The, the country that's the hub for innovation and, and is leading the Francophone um, economic market. And, but you don't often hear that because most people don't know where it is. I've even had a Harvard professor ask me, I mean, what country on the Ivory Coast, right? But you often also hear um, negative, you know, perception. So especially, you know, in the US, I've had a lot of people say, oh, but, you know, when I was, I spent most of my time in the Ivory Coast last year and people were, were just appalled by it. They're like, but, but you're, you're going to Africa is going to be so much worse, you know, during the pandemic. And integrity, I think, is, is key to everything that we do. It's very difficult to maintain and keep your integrity, especially when you don't fit in the box. And I would say that rather than thinking outside the box, destroy the box, right? So disrupt the system. And it's very difficult to do that, but it's the only way to maintain integrity to yourself and to really use your potential to its maximum um, to be able to have the impact you want to have. Speaking about narratives, you work at the intersection of youth, economic empowerment, race, ethnicity, violence, inequality, and digital technologies. What is that like? Look, you've touched a bit on some of your experiences in the various countries you've worked in and just your personal story. And I think a lot has to do with these various topics. Can you share with us um, the linkages in these areas? Of course. Um, so, like, you know, everything is intersectoral, um, intersectional, and multidimensional. Uh, but just to give you a quick, um, so my background, my first degree is in engineering, but I used to hate technology. I was what they call in Colombia, which is quite a terrible term, but they call it violentologist. So basically an expert on violence. I was working in, in a lot of the war zones and violence-affected regions. I made the topic of my PhD to work with youth in context of violence. And as, as the large majority of the young people I was working with were of African descent, so we're Black Colombians. So as I was working with the young people one day, they looked at me and they said, you know what, you're, you're helping to, to further that negative narrative of young people in context of war, young Colombians, or especially young Black people, by choosing to, to work on that topic. So that really hit me hard, and I decided to shift the way I was, I, you know, I was basically my approach, right, is really moving from a deficiency approach to an asset-based approach. So how is it that we're focusing on the potential and everything that we're doing that was fantastic? And obviously, technology, you, can, you cannot dissociate youth and technology. It's impossible. And I used to do, use a lot of, you know, media in my work. You know, they went from analog <laughs> to digital because that's just the way it is. And I was fascinated by the way that they were utilizing and maximizing tech tools to really leapfrog into market and spaces that have been traditionally, historically exclusive. And, um, and I love that. They were creating what, um, there's a sociologist in Brazil, uh, Goli Guerreiro calls the third diaspora. So, you know, that, that digital diaspora. And they were really um, disrupting not just the public spheres, but also the markets, right? So it was fascinating for me to see how they were utilizing that. But I saw that the same, you know, I saw the same trend, for example, not just in Brazil, Colombia, Peru, and Latin America in general, but also on the African continent, how tech has been, has, has been utilized in such a fantastic way. Of course, it has its flaws and everything. So that's how I came to work around this. And then also in terms of the economic empowerment, working with activists for such a long time, it was empowering, it was inspiring. But like, you know, one of my colleague always says, inspiration does not pay the bills, right? So 
she said, you know, and then political empowerment is hollow without economic growth. So it was really important to focus on how is that we're able to bring capital and also, you know, economic growth to some of these fantastic young people. And please tell us a bit about uh, the Global Black Youth and the inspiration behind it. I know you co-founded it and it's been around for a while. Really fantastic work. Please share a bit with us. No, thank you. Um, so Global Black Youth is basically the culmination of all of my personal history, but also that of my co-founder. My co-founder is Neeliti Hawana. We've known each other for quite some time right now. We both you know, have been growing tired of, again, the dominant narratives around young Africans, but we realized that it was the same trend around the world. And we realized that there was also a lack of community on, the, on a global scale, right? So there's been a lot of efforts around Pan-Africanism, um, but mostly connecting the Americas to the continent, sometimes some of Europe. And we realized that as we're working with young people in so many different sectors and around the world, they wanted to be part of that discussion, the initiatives and the programs. They wanted to be part around anything that you know, has to do, for example, the, the UN decade for people of African descent, but nobody really included them, right? So I was fascinated to find out, like I was telling you earlier, cohorts of um, you know, Black Lebanese and Black Iranians and Black Chinese. And I wanted to find the trend and, and the communities and really connect them to each other. So Global Black Youth, the first thing that it does is really fostering a global community, a global ecosystem of young people of African descent who are disrupting the status quo and who are coming up with solutions and knowledge that is being underappreciated, underutilized to our most pressing issues. So whether it's, you know, pre-pandemic coming up with solutions for, you know, addressing climate change, innovation, health and sciences, entrepreneurship, we're not tapping into that knowledge. So it's a missed opportunity. And I always say beyond like the efforts of diversity and inclusion, which is, is fine, but it's so superficial. It's like scratching the surface and not really going in depth with it. And it's also like efforts of diversity and inclusion are doing a favor to other people. You know, you know the private sector, the public sector, all the different sectors are missing out by not tapping into the knowledge that's being produced by young Black people on a global scale. It's a missed opportunity, not just in revenue, but also in all the different sectors and contributing to that knowledge, you know, coming up with solutions to the pandemic, coming up with solutions to any, so it's like thinking, for example, with 10% or 20% of our, of our brain capacity. And so it's, it's a shame. It's just, for me, it's a no brainer. A lot of the excellent work that young black people were doing, were suffering because of the, you know, the whole structural system that has, you know, that was the impacted economic system that was impacted by COVID. So we want, and then we also realized that even pre-pandemic, there were very grim stats, right? About the 4% of funding that goes into uh, female founders or the 10% that goes into, you know, Black founders in the US or the 6% of Silicon Valley money that goes into Black founders in Kenya. And we thought these, are, these numbers are ridiculous. So we want to also disrupt those grim stats, right? We want to disrupt this, the 4%, the 6%, and 10% and really establish where it doesn't exist or expand the pipeline of investment of knowledge, capital, resource, and opportunities into Black founders. So how is that we're able to sustain and support them? So SMEs, for example, don't have to suffer or you know, go out of business during something like the pandemic. We held in December of last year, we were meant to hold the first um, global annual summit of, that was called the GB, you know, Global Black Youth Fest in collaboration with the Beyond the Return Initiative, which is the continuation of the Euro the Return, and the government of Ghana, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it was postponed. Um, but we decided to do an online event because we wanted to end 2020 on a positive note, on a positive boom, right? And really acknowledge 
the work that young people had been doing during that year, despite of all the challenges, and really set the tone for hopeful 2021 and beyond. So we, we held um, the event online. We had over 2,000 people interacting over two days, and we had conversations around female-led technologies to AI machine learning to um, entrepreneurship and access to capital to women entrepreneurs to digital storytelling and so many other topics. And um, main language is in English, but we made sure to have concurrent sessions in Spanish, Portuguese, and French. And we had two demo days, one that was for Lusophone countries, another one for Anglophone countries. We will hold this on an annual basis, and hopefully the next one will be in person. And making sure that the first one is on the continent, but the second one goes in a diaspora and back and forth. So yeah, so we're hopeful for 2021. I saw the poster on your website. Uh, the lineup looked very interesting. And in as much as COVID has really been so disastrous for everyone, but I think it, it's really forced us to be very resourceful and to try and do things differently in terms of connecting, being able to carry on with our work and, and be impactful and, and make a difference. So well done to you and your team for that. You have been speaking about changing the narrative. And one thing that comes to mind is the issue of representation. Now, I want to ask you, what would you say has been the common thread in terms of civic engagement or participation for women and, and youth, particularly of African descent in the various countries that you've been in? One of the things that I'm picking up is the issue of representation whether it is from obtaining funding and other initiatives or enterprises that young people of African descent may want to pursue. What have you noticed in your experience? No, thank you. Um, so yeah, representation is key, but it just goes beyond representation. Like That's what I was saying, that I have a, a very big issue with the whole efforts around diversity and inclusion, because it sounds good, but it's like a buzzword. And for me, it has to go beyond that buzzword, right? Everybody's talking about it, especially after the, you know, the events last year and the Black Lives Matter, um, Matter movement. Everybody seemed, especially the private sector, seemed committed, quote unquote, to racial equity. But to what extent, right? So having a, a few more interns in their companies does not make them diverse, right? So we have to look at what positions, for example, in the private sector, private company, um, they hold at executive level. So that's one of the things that I've been advising um, in Brazil, the private sector in Brazil, is that how is that we move beyond just those superficial efforts to really engaging and utilizing some of the most um, high caliber talent, black talent in their companies, even in the midst of the pandemic, even before the pandemic, say if we take a country like Brazil, even with the exclusion and the left wing government, the largest pool of entrepreneurs were still made of women. And the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Brazil has completely skyrocketed. I mean, it's, it's one of the most inspiring places I've worked in. So young people are not waiting for things to happen. They're not waiting for the government. They're, they're taking charge of their future, of their present, and are really pushing those boundaries. And that's something that has surprised me. And But like I said, they're really maximizing tech tools and innovation entrepreneurship and pushing those boundaries and to really enter those spaces and markets and occupy those spaces and market, not just enter. I've, I've seen this across the world. And that's, that's the most um, you know, fantastic thing. That's why it's really important. And we've seen, for example, the, the impact of what the Black Lives Matter movement has, has had, for example, on communities in, in Turkey. So the Black Turks have been really harnessing it to, to push their movements and the representation in the 
in the country and the communities. And we've seen that in other parts like in New Zealand and Australia. So really thinking and how you know, one movement somewhere can also impact the initiatives in another place of the world and how that connection, that's why it's so key to have that global ecosystem can help to further the work locally by connecting globally. And entrepreneurship and innovation are such buzzwords and it's fantastic, but they're not new words. I mean, for you to be an entrepreneur, you have to be creative and for you to be an entrepreneur, you have to be pushed to your boundaries. You know, it's the hustle. So, and innovation is born out of necessity. And um, the most innovative people I've met are not, you know, do not come out of Silicon Valley or Cambridge or Berlin. They came out of the places that you least expect them to. And that's the fantastic part. And this is what we have to tap into. And we have to decentralize and decolonize innovation to really discover those gems in the most hidden places or unconventional places. You're so right. I've been doing a little research of my own around women and social entrepreneurship. And I find that a lot of the time, Women get into entrepreneurship out of necessity and most of their enterprises are socially orientated. Would you say this has been your observation? Absolutely. Um, the funny thing is I was asked recently to kind of source entrepreneurs on the African continent, you know, who have a social impact. And I thought it was such a weird thing. It was such a redundancy because I thought I would say everybody in our database that we have um, in our membership have a social impact. You know, they create a, a business or industry responding to need in the communities and the region. So it was, it was kind of counterintuitive when I was asked to do that. And just even if we think about, you know, something in fintech, I mean, they're enabling, you know, whether it's a digital economy, uh, some kind of sort of a need in the country for the, the country to excel, the community to excel, a particular group to excel. So it's impossible for me to think about the, fit, the work of entrepreneurs, any given places, especially on the African continent and Latin America and the global South, particularly without them having a social impact. So that's what I would say. I see. And I get it. And I totally agree with your thoughts in terms of that. I think a lot of the time, entrepreneurs who come from rural areas, for example, sometimes don't have the language to articulate what they do. And so they are not able to fully communicate their work and the impact that they have. But it doesn't mean that it's not there, you know. So I, I totally get that. Going back to, to COVID-19 and how it has affected how we work, how we function, our everyday lives, doing business. Your thoughts around digital rights around the world, what needs to be done, what is happening in that space? Thank you. So I was having a discussion, I remember last year with the web foundation and a lot of the stats around it, you know, and they're like, Oh, you know, 50 years ago, we had, I don't know, 50%, close to 50% of the population that was not, that was connected and the rest. No. Well, today we still have 50% of the population that's not connected, right. That hasn't, that doesn't have access to the internet and data is still, you know, on the African continent, the data is still the most expensive. Those for me were the basics. And as we became digital overnight, um, many people did not have the luxury to transform their lives and work so rapidly, right? So uh, we can say, I mean, obviously, the, you know, everything went around and we, we, we uh, Global Like Youth, we, we covered it as well. You know, there was a lot of issues around misinformation, disinformation, which were key and obviously, you know, very critical issues to address. There was a lot of issues around surveillance and what was happening around that. Um, and there are just so many issues that are obviously, they're, again, they're all inter you know, intersectional but I would say the most important thing is I've seen, for example, young entrepreneurs and, and you know, SMEs 
in Latin America, especially Latin America and Africa, is that they needed to, they had to often go completely digital, right? They were doing fantastic work and overnight, and a lot of them were not ready to do that um, or did not have access or were working in settings, for example, even with our health um, professionals that we, with whom we work with and in Colombia, they didn't have the tool, they didn't have the system or the ecosystem for them to be able to, to do their work right, right? They had no access to, you know, simple digital access that we, we had the luxury to, um, some of us had the luxury to have. So I would say that that's the most important thing. And or even when we look at schooling, how many people, you know, the whole curriculum went online, but how, how many people were left of that schooling, that education, and then the whole subsequent, you know, um, consequences of that because, because they didn't have the luxury of um, digital access. And we can, you know, we can look at examples that were, that were quite, I wouldn't say completely successful, but for example, you know, the efforts around Rwanda, they digitized um, the whole curriculum within two weeks, right? And, and the government worked very closely with entrepreneurs in the country. And, um, and then what they did is they, they really tried to, to continue the education and, and have the least amount of disruption by, you know, uh, transmitting a lot of the work by radio and um, by television. Again, they're very much, um, very much limited. So I would say that was the biggest that was the biggest challenge that we face, and then how that inequality that was already very much apparent and that is also growing because of uh, our focus on innovation and tech and AI, which I love and I'm very much interested in that, but it's, it's also widening that gap, that inequality gap with those, like you said, for example, the, the mother who has very little access or you know, no access to the internet and um, being an entrepreneur about what she does, she's trying to feed her family, but, you know, can we say that she's being less of an entrepreneur, or the, you know, because she doesn't have that language, or that branding to have that, you know, that LinkedIn profile and then, you know, enter those spaces where those discussions are being held, those opportunities are being given. And so, you know, there's just there's so many issues um, around that. But I would just say, like, that's that's one of the things that we have to consider how that digital transformation has become so key and so relevant during the pandemic and even now. So civic tech is a relatively new concept in Africa. But I've seen a number of interesting fintech innovations coming out of Africa, countries like Nigeria, like Kenya, entrepreneurs finding different ways of making it possible for relatives to send money home, you know, to transact. I do know that the innovations are there. People are using civic technology, not only in the area of fintech, but to also solve other social issues like making healthcare more available to people in rural areas. But I think it's still a struggle because of the poor infrastructure we have in Africa. Uh, how would you say or what advice would you give to emerging entrepreneurs who want to get in, into the civic tech space? So I would say that, like I was um, reiterating earlier, the most innovative people I've met were not coming out of those conventional, like, you know, the usual suspects um, places. So Silicon Valley, Berlin, London, they were just, they're coming from the places that had the most infrastructure limitations. The reality of it is that if the government does not enable an ecosystem that facilitates, it becomes very challenging. This is why one of the things that we wanted to do, and we also largely focus on, how is that we can connect go beyond, for example, the, the national ecosystem and create a global ecosystem. So, for example, young Africans can tap into that global ecosystem and look for opportunities that are otherwise absent in their home country. For example, one of the things that we're doing 
is creating an investment portal and facilitating with, you know, working with other companies, facilitating transnational um, investment so we can really support the innovation, but also the enterprises of young Africans, right? So bringing that capital, the resources, having mentors across borders as well, who can enable the work that you're doing, who can help you to further and scale up. And that's really important. So trying to, because there's so, I mean, there's so much we can change about the government and we can see, for example, the governments who have enabled that ecosystem to facilitate um, and kind of further that innovation have been at the fore, you know, of all those discussions. And I mean, when we take the example of Rwanda, Senegal has been fantastic in doing so as well. Um, Nigeria has been thriving, especially in the fintech area. But I would say that, for example, some of the people that we work with, um, let's say in Nigeria, especially when it comes to female entrepreneurs, they had to really tap into a global network to, to get and to receive the support that they needed to be able to scale and reach the impact um, that they wanted to. So that's why it's really key for us to think about connecting, connecting beyond just borders, beyond the region with people who are doing very similar work and who can really co-inspire and co-transform together, but also a network of, of mentors, of investors, of other entrepreneurs who have made it. So one of the other things, for example, that we're um, launching next month is the Black Entrepreneurs Club. So we're going to have, you know, not just up and coming entrepreneurs, but also established entrepreneurs, people who were part of, like, say, the corporate um, system who have left to launch their own enterprises, who have been very successful, who can, you know, pay it forward, but not just pay it forward, but who can connect and discover some of the most promising and high caliber entrepreneurs. So that's the work that we're trying to focus on. We're hoping that this would, would serve to, to overcome a lot of the national disparities, but also the national limitations present in each country. Because we can't we can change them. We can't really change, for example, the cost of data, right? We can't really change the bureaucracy that exists in each country. That's our small effort to contribute to that. Oh, no, it's no small effort. I think the work that you do is really a big deal. I think we need a lot of support. We need a lot of efficient networks that help Africans to connect and to use resources efficiently and not necessarily keep on reinventing the wheel, but to borrow solutions from each other at the same time, tailor making them to suit the various environments that we come from. So please do share with us information on the new program that you are working on and perhaps we could share it on the CTIN network platforms. I mean, us at CTIN it's one of the reasons why it's so important to ensure that the network does well because we support so many initiatives. We help to amplify their voices and to make sure that the work that they're doing is out there because a lot of the time it's not that people are not doing anything. It's not that communities are not trying to solve their own problems, but there isn't an awareness or a platform where some of the solutions can be showcased and it becomes easier to further raise funding or to, to help equip them better, you know. But, but well done to you and your team at, at Global Black Youth. Uh, with that said, what is the plan going forward the next five years? Where do you see Global Black Youth? What will you guys be up to? Wow, that's um, quite a complex uh, question. There's so many dreams that we have, but I would say that one of the things that we want to launch this year to start with, we are creating a platform for Black freelancers and creatives around the world. 
And this came out of um, a need, basically a frustration of a film producer in the US who contacted us and they were frustrated because they, they could not tap into you know, any given platform to look for a black content writer, right? They were producing their next film series and they needed a black content writer and they could not go to anywhere to find that. You know, there's some initiatives, for example, on the African continent, that's just for the continent. There's some in the US, just for the US, but there's nothing that really is able to serve black youth on a global scale. And as we were also doing the work, you know, we had to outsource, for example, in Southeast Asia, in, in Venezuela, in different places, but we wanted to make sure that we also kind of tap into the community that we're also serving. But again, that platform was missing. So we decided to um, work with other colleagues and we're putting together, the platform is called Ashe. I'm not sure if Ashe is a word that's used in uh, South Africa, but Ashe comes, I mean, it comes from the Yoruba language, but it's a concept that's used in many places in the world, especially in Brazil, is the power to transform, right? So the power to transform was, was very key to us. And then, and that, that it's an energy that gives you the power to transform. And that energy that comes from your ancestors is really important. So that platform is going to help to, it's basically what we always say is like the upwork and or the fiber for global black youth. So then we can also address the growing, you know, unemployment uh, among young people, especially on the continent. And, you know, taking into account that a large percent, a large majority, well, not majority, but a large percentage uh, of the economy is informal on the continent. And um, as we're moving more and more digital, but also young people are becoming much more tech savvy, how is that we can utilize their skills without thinking about having them to um, enter the traditional workforce, which is, you know, being destroyed with time. So we want to be able to address this, maximize the talent of um, young black people, especially on the continent, and, um, and then connect them with, with, um, with work opportunities. We will also have as part of this, a component that's going to address and acknowledge the educational gap. Um, so we're working, for example, with Trace Academy, which is an initiative of um, Trace TV, to work, for example, with companies like Microsoft, where they have you know, their certification that is costly, but we're going to make them available for free. And also all the courses that are available for free, for example, at Harvard or at MIT, that most people don't have access to or don't know of. And how is that we're able to make all of these available on our platforms and then they can get the certification that they need and boost their profile. So that's one of the things we're working on really hard at the moment. In about five years, I want to see Global Black Youth Institute. I want us to be like the institute, not just for education purposes, no, but to harness and to find, you know, the gems everywhere in the world, especially in the, you know, in rural regions, which we normally don't um, look into. But talents are everywhere, but not opportunities. So how is that we're able to go and source those talents everywhere and then, you know, make sure that they're part of that ecosystem at Global Black Youth Institute for them to flourish and then have access to everything that they need, you know, access to knowledge, opportunities, how is that we're able to push them to reach the, the highest potential. So um, that's our dream and so many other projects down the line, but that's where I see Global Black Youth in five years and really having that global community. So then people can just, you know, log into the platform and be like, you know what, I want to find somebody who is an ex, you know, this work in, in FinTech or in EdTech, right? And they're able to find it. And then, ooh, I want to connect with somebody over there and they can find it. But beyond that, having not just 2,000, 3,000, having 50,000 people in our Global Black Youth Fest, right? And then having really supporting each other so we, we can reach, you know, we can overcome all those 
um, disparities, all those structural limitations that, that are currently in place. Uh, the work that you are doing is really inspiring. And thank you for doing the work. I don't know if people get recognized enough for the work that they do. And I also think because of the type of experiences, it tends to make you work internally on yourself as well because you get to interact with many people with different stories. Uh, some may be sad, you know, some may be happy, questioning your own identity, the multidisciplinary type of issues that come up when you have traveled so much, when you engage with so many people, when you interact in so many different countries that have got their own challenges. So well done to you and to your to your team. I really wish you and everybody at uh, Global Black Youth all of the best, but I have no doubt that you will do well. Thank you very much for making time to speak to us today. Thank you very much, Mabato, for this uh, fantastic opportunity. And I hope I look very much forward um, when this pandemic is over to revisit South Africa. It was one of my favorite places. It really touched my heart. We would certainly love to have you here. That was Neo Shoroshani from Global Black Youth. I hope you were inspired and enjoyed the conversation. Look out for our next episode when we speak to Baratang Mia, CEO of Go Hype, and we discuss data science and AI for women and girls. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets.